Today's reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 14. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 to 14, which is on Bible page 226. <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when, he, when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? They is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance with handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, we're continuing our series um, through First Samuel and we'll go through 1 Samuel chapter 16. So if you have your Bible, please have your Bibles open. And let's go through it and let's ask God to speak to us through this passage. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's, it speaks to us. It rebukes and corrects and trains us for all righteousness. And we pray that it'll do just that this morning. Speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you have ever, ever, have ever done a trust fall? Trustful. 
Um, you stand in the front, you fall backwards, and somebody, you're, somebody you trust that somebody is going to catch you um, as you fall. And who would you rather have behind you? Would you, have, would you want a little child or a muscly man? Muscly man, right? Old granny or an athlete? An athlete? This wasn't that hard, guys. <laughs> the choice is obvious. Um, the thing is, for most tasks, for all the tasks that we want to do in, in our lives, really, we will choose the most qualified, most experienced, most knowledgeable, the strongest. We have to. We have to choose these people, but God does not. And that's how, because... Uh, uh, that's not how God sees us or evaluates us. God does not look at the outward appearance or our qualifications. God, in fact, chooses often the youngest, the, not, the most frail, the most unlikely to show that it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whom God chooses because in the end, God will do it. It's him who will do it. The question is whether then we, would tr- we will trust God in all things. If you have your Bibles open, take a look at verse 1. In verse 1, we find Samuel mourning for Saul when God tells him to go to Jesse of Bethlehem. Remember, God had rejected Saul. Saul had sinned. It grieved God and Samuel, and Samuel is crying. And God then comes to Samuel and says, Go. God has chosen one of his sons to be king, Jesse's sons to be king. Literally, it's, I have seen a king for myself. The rest of that chapter, the part that we read actually, the ver- first 13 verses, contains six, six times a word to see in various forms. This is all about how God sees the world, how we see the world. I have seen a king for myself. So Samuel filled up the corn with oil and went to Bethlehem. The town trembled because they knew that Samuel and Saul were not in good terms. And Samuel has to tell them that he's come in peace to offer sacrifice. And many of you know the story. One by one, Jesse brings his sons. He he brings his first son, Eliab. And he's impressed. Samuel's impressed. He sees this man and he thinks, oh, God has chosen well. Surely the Lord's anointed stand before the, uh, stands here before the Lord. He's tall like Saul. He's good looking. But the Lord says to him, verse 7, Do not consider how he seems or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. That's a trans, uh, 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 translation, more, more, more literal translation in verse 7. The Lord sees not as man sees. Samuel, God's prophet, actually saw wrongly. He saw with his own eyes, and he chose the one that he wanted to choose, a tall, handsome man, the oldest, the eldest, the one who seems most qualified. And when God says, no, that's not him, Jesse brings his second son, Abinadab, and then Shammah, then the rest came out, and the Lord had not chosen any of them. So he asked Jesse in verse 11, Are these all the sons you have? And Jesse answered, There's the youngest still. Scholars write that the word that's used for youngest here isn't just youngest in age. It carries this connotation of insignificant, the, the, the least significant. 
He's, uh, he, he wasn't even uh, um, on his mind. It, it means that, uh, that this was, um, uh, he, he didn't amount to much. He didn't come, David didn't come to Jesse's mind to even present him. Of course, that's why he's, he's looking after the sheep. He's not in the house. He's doing a lowly job out there in the field looking after the sheep. David is a complete afterthought. If you look at verse 10, Jesse, it says, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And if you know, once again, a little bit about the Bible, number seven represents number of completeness. What it means is that Jesse thinks that he's presented all the sons that he had. He presented all seven of his sons. You see, the eighth one is insignificant. He's invisible. He wasn't even on Jesse's mind. But it is him. It is David that God saw. And it is David whom God chose because God sees not as man sees. And that should correct how we see each other. In July, uh, July, uh, uh, sorry, in July 2010, issue of Newsweek carried an article on looksism, like ageism or uh, other isms, looksism. It reported that handsome men, on average, apparently in their lifetime, uh, on average earn 5% more than just as equally qualified but uglier people. 5% more. Surprisingly, actually, for women, it's uh, slightly less, 4% more. And it's not just uh, the earning. On average, they, they, it's $250,000 more in their lifetime. Hiring and firing, of course, is affected by it too. 57% of managers believe that an attractive person will have a higher chance of getting the job. And not only that, once they get the job, 68% believe how they appear. Their appearance matters in their evaluation of their performance that they will be evaluated higher, better, if they are better looking. Of course, this is not just limited to the physical appearance. We don't just judge by physical appearance. The outward appearance is all about, uh, also about other measurable qualities of, of success, like family pedigree, which university one attended, how much money uh, one makes, what their reputation is like. They're all the ways the world judges us, and therefore, the way that we judge others. God does not see as man sees. And it's bad enough that we judge others in this way. How do you judge yourself? How do you evaluate yourself? Isn't it often through eyes of other people? How they see you. So often my self-worth depends on how others are evaluating me. Whether you all think that I'm a good pastor, whether you all think I've preached a good sermon or not, it's important to me. I think about it. Isn't that why you all also think about what your boss has said to you over and over again? How they've evaluated it. It's important to your self-worth. depends on their judgment of you. And it changes our behavior. We live to be seen better as important, good, godly, attractive, or whatever. We do this, I think, most obviously in this day and age through social media. We carefully select what kind of picture to put on, what articles that we put the links to, or carefully go over every word of what we've written so that we might be seen the right way. Because that's not just how others judge us, that's how we judge ourselves. 
friends, how do you judge others? How do you see others? How do you see yourself? God does not see as man sees. God sees something different in each one of us. It doesn't matter your success or your looks or whatever it is. God sees you as a valuable person, a loved person, a person worth dying for. Is that how we see each other? But if the Lord does not see us like that, how does he see? What what does he look for? If you look at verse 7, Many commentators have written how NIV translates the end of verse 7 in a not very helpful way. And it's very difficult to correct because we love what it's written, how it's written. It says in verse 7, People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. But a more literal translation goes like this. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man sees, for man sees according to the eyes, but the Lord sees according to the heart. The heart is not about what God looks at. It's about how God sees. Man sees according to the eyes. God sees according to the heart. It's about he sees with his heart. Well, what does that mean? It means that he sees according to his divine, sovereign, perfect will. That's how he chooses, and that's how he chose David A scholar named John Woodhouse put it like this. I hope this is helpful. Whatever outstanding qualities we might see in this new King David are are the consequences of, not the reasons for God's choice of him. The security of David's throne will rest on the solid foundation of God's promise, not on David's performance. That is what will make his reign so different from Saul's. You see, this passage isn't about what God saw in David's heart, as it's often believed to be. As if he saw something there in David's heart, something really great. In the following chapters, we will see how David is great in many ways, but actually his heart will contain the same pride, contain the same lust that's in all of us. He actually will do something that many of us, most of us, hopefully will never do. Adultery and murder. It's not. The point of this chapter, friends, isn't that David was somehow special, that he had a pure heart, but that God picked him anyway because he's small, because he's the youngest, because he is insignificant. And what makes him different is not some quality in him, but what God will do in him. What does God do? Well, I should say, this fits God's pattern, right? God's pattern of how he chooses. He picked Abel, not Cain. Jacob, not Esau. Moses, not Aaron. All the firstborn are rejected. Sarah, the old and barren, is picked before Hagar, fertile and young. The cross-eyed Leah, whom nobody wanted, God picked over Rachel, the beautiful. He chose Hannah, who was barren, Elizabeth, who was also barren, Rahab, who was a prostitute. God again and again chooses the barren, chooses the youngest, chooses the unlikely, chooses the weakest. You see, here's the point. David is different because of what God will do. Look what God does. As Samuel anoints David, verse 13, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully Upon David. The Spirit of the Lord literally rushed upon David as he was anointed, as the oil was poured upon. In the Old Testament, the Spirit came for certain tasks to rule, to prophesy, and to lead. 
And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson three times in the book of Judges and three times over Saul for certain and particular tasks. But look what makes David different. It's that little phrase in verse 13, the very beginning. From that day on, from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David. And he remained, the Spirit remained upon David. That's what sets David apart from Saul. Not his heart, but God's Spirit. And look what happens to Saul, verse 14. Now that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit, of, spirit from the Lord tormented him. He's no longer special, not because he gets uglier, not because he gets less qualified. He, he, get, he, he is not chosen anymore because the Spirit departed from him. And the rest of the chapter is all about that. We don't have time to go into it, but it's all about that. And David must have known how special God's Spirit is because when he sins, the famous psalm that he composed in Psalm 51, remember that little line? He, he asked God to not to take your Holy Spirit away from me. That's from her personal experience. He has seen what happened to Saul when God's Spirit was removed. And when he sins, he pleads with God that he would not remove his Holy Spirit from him. You might ask, well, why does God choose the youngest? Why does God choose the most unlikely, the barren? Well, would we really think that it's God doing these things? If God chose the handsomest, most qualified, the strongest, would we really think that if God chose that person, that it's God who saves? You see, God is making this point so that all would know that it is he who saves and none other. He chooses the youngest and the weakest because if he can save with these people, then we can trust him. Him in all things, whether weak people are in power or strongest people are in power, whatever is happening, we can trust him to come and save. So friends, I want to ask, in this difficult time, will you trust in God to be your king, to be your savior? Over your life, over Hong Kong, over the world, well, what does it mean to trust in this king, in this God? Well, I think first and foremost, it means that we live in the way that he has told us to live. Even if it's not the most effective or efficient, sensible way. It wasn't efficient or sensible to anoint the youngest and the most inexperienced as the next king of Israel. But God did. And isn't that the truth? That God's way often isn't the most sensible or efficient way. To be honest, in your CV is much less effective than to lie on your CV, isn't it? To, uh, to be honest, to live God's way, to forgive 70 times 7, that's not the most effective or sensible thing to do. To love your enemies, to give your money away, to be generous, to help others, isn't the most in most of the most of the times efficient or sensible but that's what it means to trust in god to live our lives god's way and as i look at hong kong it might seem like most efficient and effective thing maybe for the police thought to do is to take justice into uh, into their own hands and scare the uh, the protesters with excessive force 
just as it might seem as sensible and efficient for the protesters to use violence strategically. But of course, both options are not options for the Christian because we trust in God. We live our lives God's way, not our own way. Will you do that? Will you live in Hong Kong God's way? And will you pray? Because that's got be, that, to be the first and foremost what it means to trust God, to go to God. In this city, some are saying Christians need to stop praying and go out and do something. Friends, God can bring peace to this city even through the unlikeliest people. I don't know how and through whom God will do it, but the question is, will we go to God? Will we trust him and, and his ways and his sovereign rule? Will we pray? Will we pray that God will do it? And if we trust, because if we trust in any other Savior other than God himself, it will always, always disappoint. It doesn't matter if that person, if the thing that you trust is a person, the next CEO or the next president of the U.S. or something, or an ideology, capitalism, communism, uh, democracy, We can't look to our material possessions either, our looks, reputation, ourselves. If we trust in any of these things other than God, we will always be disappointed. That's what happened to Samuel. In the beginning of our chapter, Samuel is mourning over Saul. Samuel was disappointed. His hope was dashed. He had really hoped that Saul would lead Israel in the right way, that freedom, justice, righteousness would come to Israel. But he's mourning for Israel. And doesn't that sound like Hong Kong? We're grieving, longing for peace. But then the Lord comes to Samuel. Verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I've rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to the to Jesse of Bethlehem, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Samuel is rebuked, not for grieving, but for grieving too long. Remember, God mourned for Saul as well. We too can grieve, but not as those who have no hope. We too can grieve over Hong Kong, but not as those who have no hope, as if we don't have a king over the city. So God told him to go because Samuel was overwhelmed. He forgot that God still reigns over Israel. And God told him to go and anoint David as the next Messiah, next Christ. And through David, Jesus came. The shoot from the stump of Jesse, the Messiah. And this is why the prophet Isaiah says about Jesus, In Isaiah 11, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. How unlikely is that? You cut down a tree and you think it's dead, but this, this shoot grows from the stump. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him in the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, but decide by what he hears with his ears. Or decide by what he hears with his ears. 
the rest of the chapter speaks of Jesus in his rule. Jesus was chosen. He's the one that the Spirit remained. Remember when he was baptized, the Spirit came and rested, remained on him. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And God announced to the world, this is my son whom I love, with whom I am pleased. This is the Christ that I am sending you. This is the Savior of the world. People are mourning over the state of the city, and we should. It's been hard on everyone. The level of violence, reckless hatred, it shocked us and saddened us. But remember, this is not new. Genesis chapter 3, and as soon as people fall, what happens? A Cain kills Abel. A brother kills a brother. And it's been like that since that day. But God did send a Savior, the King that we truly need, the King that we look to, to deal with our sins, to renew each one of us, to make us a new people. We can't mourn like those who have no hope. Friends, we know the Savior. We know the grace that brought him to the cross that died for sinners like us. We know the forgiveness he gives gives freely to everyone who comes to him. We know the power that raised him up from the dead because that power is in us by God's Spirit. And he has saved us through grace. We must then hold out this hope of knowing Jesus to the world around us. We must be Christ's representatives. We must be people of grace, forgiveness, and his power, especially at this time. So first, let me address the church. Church, there is neither Gentile nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, nor blue or yellow. For we are all one in Christ Jesus here. The people who you are sitting next to, people who are baptized, people who turn to Christ, we're one family in Christ. We need to do that here. Or else, what, what, what has Jesus called you for? Let's live in peace. Let's live his way here, not just here, but as we go out to the world. As Christ people, living patiently in his way, We can't save the world, but we can point people to the one who did, the one that they need. And you might say, well, that's insignificant. Well, that's inefficient. Well, that's not how God sees it. God is almighty, and we can trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're God who is mighty in power that you have saved each one of us from our sins. Lord, that you have brought us to yourself through the power of your Spirit. And Lord, we thank you that you are doing a new thing through the church, through your people. Lord, help us to see the world. Help us to see each other not as the world sees. Help us to see our situation not as the world sees. Help us to be people who are fixed, whose eyes are fixed on you, the Christ, the King, who is sovereign over all the world. And help us to live trusting him in his way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.